as advertised last time, we have been trucking along in the book of Acts, and Richard asked me if we were ever going to do Proverbs, and the last time I have done Proverbs is when we had a yeshiva going, because it's wonderful for teaching young people, and I haven't done Proverbs since. So what we're going to do is an experiment, and we're going to alternate weeks between Proverbs and Acts. We'll probably get done with Acts before we finish Proverbs at this rate. Let's start, and then we'll talk about what we're dealing with here. Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So that's his introduction. A couple of things to do to unpack this. One of the things that you all know is when Solomon became king, he was a very young man, and his prayer to God was that he be given wisdom to be king over Israel. And of course, God said, well, since you asked for wisdom instead of wealth or power, I will give you wisdom, and oh, by the way, I'll give you wealth and power too. So he is regarded biblically as the wisest man who ever lived, and there are three books in scripture that are written by him, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and the Song of Songs. I think probably Ray and Kay, or maybe Suzanne, remember Jeff by Stupa. He was one of the original founders of the congregation 17 years ago. Great guy. And as we started reading the Torah portions, he drew the Torah portion where we read Ecclesiastes. And he came to me and said, you want me to read all of Ecclesiastes out loud? And he said, yeah. Okay. And he did. And his introduction, I thought, was really quite good. He said, Solomon was the wisest man in the world, was given the gift of wisdom by God, and this is his report to the people of the world, what he learned. So God gave him a gift, and that gift was wisdom, and these three books that he's written are his report back to what he learned with that gift. And I always thought that was really a nice perspective on the book. It's mostly aimed at men. There are a couple of passages that deal with women. And I've always said that the reason most of the Bible deals with men is because we need it more. And I'm very serious. I don't mean that in a snarky, sexist way. Men are far more destructive. When they go off the rails, they are harder to calm down, all that kind of stuff. So the Bible is aimed at getting men under control. And most of Proverbs follows in that vein. Proverbs 31, of course, is aimed right at women. And when we get there, we can talk about that. The other thing to understand is when it says Solomon was the wisest man in the world, that is not biblical hyperbole. That's quantifiable. And in the wisdom of the East, wisdom is codified in Proverbs. The more Proverbs that you know and can recite and apply appropriately to a given situation, the wiser you are. So the fact that Solomon knew all of these Proverbs and, of course, could apply them appropriately 
was a measurable indication of his wisdom. So as I say, the wisest man in the world is not a hyperbolic statement at all. It is literally a statement of he knew more of these wisdom parables than anybody else. One of the things to understand is in Scripture there are three kinds of fool. There is a young fool, which is somebody who just doesn't have any experience. And everybody goes through that, especially young guys, you know, when they got more thrust than rudder. They just do stupid stuff. And that kind of a fool can be corrected. And that kind of a fool is what Proverbs is aimed at, so that he can learn without killing himself or somebody else and attain maturity more quickly than he would if left to his own devices. The next one is a scoffer. The scoffer is not necessarily young, but is someone who, when confronted with scripture or wisdom in scripture, scoffs and mocks, if you will. That one is harder. And then the last one you have is what's called a hardened fool. And for him, the Bible offers no hope. If somebody reaches the stage of being a hardened fool, there's nothing good said about him, and it's not a very hopeful place to be. So as we're going through the book, it's important to understand what kind of fool we're talking about, whether it's a young guy that can be corrected with a little bit of wisdom and maybe a rod, or whether it's a hardened or mocking fool who is just there to serve as a bad example. The final thing I'll say as introduction is in most of your Bibles, this is formatted as poetry. And biblical poetry is not like poetry in English or any of the Western languages. It doesn't depend on rhyming, as in we use word rhymes and so forth. Hebrew poetry doesn't depend on that. What it depends on is playing similar concepts off one against the other. Let me skip quickly to Proverbs 11. Pick it up at 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. So what you have is pride played off against humility, and then disgrace played off against wisdom. Well, the opposite of disgrace in our way of thinking is not wisdom, it's honor. So one doesn't think that the opposite of disgrace is wisdom. And what it's supposed to do is lead you to have a conversation just like what I'm having right now. Wait a minute, what does that mean? Why is disgrace played off against wisdom? Why is disgrace the negative concept played off against wisdom a positive concept? How are disgrace and wisdom related? And so the way these are set up, they're designed to make you stop and go, hmm, and think about what's going on. So what Hebrew poetry does, it plays concepts off against one another as opposed to rhyming words. The Hebrew term, by the way, for that couplet that I just read is a mashal. Mashal is variously translated as oracle. So when Balaam is cursing Israel and he's doing it in poetry, it says he took up his mashal and said. And most of your Bibles will translate that as oracle or something like that. The underlying Hebrew word is mashal. And again, the idea here is it's Eastern wisdom. And so the format of these little units of wisdom, if you will, is called a mashal. Now, starting in verse 7, this is the beginning of a chiasm. And the other end of the chiasm is going to be at the end of chapter 1. A chiasm is a literary structure that looks like a chevron. 
So you've got a concept, you've got the same concept here. Then you come in a step, you've got the concept here, the same concept there. Then you come in a step, you've got the same concept here and the same concept there. And so forth until you get the middle, which is what it's pointing at. And in the Bible, chiasms are short and obvious. They will go over several books of Scripture. So you have a chiasm in Exodus that goes all the way through the book of Exodus and winds up in Leviticus. So anyway, this is the beginning of a chiasm. So verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is a marshal. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. How does that then play off against fools despising wisdom and instruction? What does that say about a fool's relationship to the Lord? There's no fear of God there. I'm not going to unpack every one of these as we go. Anybody that wants to is certainly welcome to stop me and say, all right, let's unpack that. I am perfectly happy to do that, but I'm not going to just routinely do it for everyone. I'm just showing you the form. Oh, one other thing before I leap in here. Going back to verse 5, I said that this is really mostly aimed at young men, but not entirely. So if you look at verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. So notice the wise are hearing and they're increasing in learning. This goes back to what I said where wisdom is a quantifiable thing. So as the wise listen to these things and they learn them, they will increase in learning. In other words, they will increase their store of these units of wisdom that they have in their bag to use at some other time when appropriate. So the wise will hear an increase in learning, and the one who understands, so just hearing them and memorizing them is one thing, but understanding them is yet something else. And again, that's why I say these are designed to evoke discussion and conversation. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. One of the things that happens in the East is riddles. You've all heard some of the famous ones in Greek mythology. The, the riddle of the Sphinx, for example. So this was a very common form of discourse in that region at that time. So the idea of to understand a proverb and a saying, comma, the words of the wise and their riddles. So when you are in the presence of one who is wise, he is very often likely to speak in riddles. Anybody watch Star Wars? Yoda in Star Wars would speak like that. It's a very common literary form, if you will. So again, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And by the way, that's the second step in in the chiasm. We're going to see a necklace later on. But the idea that someone who is well-mannered and wise and gracious will be regarded well as if he were wearing expensive ornaments. Good manners and wisdom and fair speech are, of course, far more valuable than actual ornaments. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. 
Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive. And whole, like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods, we shall fill our houses with plunder, throw in your lot among us, we will all have one purse. Stop there a minute. So this starts with, if they say in verse 11, and ends, we will all have one purse. And this is a fairly common thing of people who want to lead a young fool into mischief. They will entice you with the promise of riches. And of course, they will always say, let's throw it all into one pot. The idea at the end of the day is that the wicked will, in fact, either cheat in the division or abscond with the pot. So this is a fool's bargain, and it will lead you nowhere good, even though it may seem tempting. Again, when you're all thrust in no rudder, the idea of doing something like that can certainly be superficially attractive. So verse 15 now. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. This is again a wisdom saying. What it's saying is, a bird seeing you set a trap will fly away. These people are not even as smart as a bird. Because what they're doing by their actions is they are setting their feet into a trap that will eventually lead them to destruction. And a bird can see the trap, but these people are so stupid they can't. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So you may think that you're about to make a quick killing here, no pun intended, and you're going to come off of this really rich, but just understand that this will eventually lead to your destruction. Verse 20. Wisdom is personified here, and it is personified as a woman. It's not an unalloyed thing, because we're going to have the feminine wisdom, but we're also going to have the feminine trough. So the simple fact that we're using feminine will cut both ways. Verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate she speaks. Stop a minute. What's he saying there? Everything in your life is a potential source of wisdom. So as you're going through your daily life and you're in the gates or you're in the marketplace or wherever, pay attention because there is potential wisdom to be gained there if you are looking for it. Verse 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And there are three different Hebrew terms there. So the simple one is a youth. He hadn't lived long enough to have any depth or complexity about him. He's simple. No shame in that unless you stay simple. If you stay simple for the rest of your life, then that's really bad. But everybody goes through that simplicity. But once you get to scoffers and fools who hate knowledge, that gets progressively worse. And... One of the things that is sort of being implied here is scoffers superficially sound wise to the young. You get somebody older who scoffs at things and gives you the impression that I know what's really going on here. To the simple youth who doesn't have any wisdom, that will be attractive. 
because it looks like a shortcut to wisdom, or it looks like this guy really knows what's going on, so I'll be with him so I can learn what's going on. The lesson here is to be able to tell the difference between a scoffer and someone who has true wisdom. 23, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Now, who is wisdom speaking to here? I think this is addressed to the simple. She's not talking to the scoffer, and she's not talking to the fool. She's talking to the simple one who may be drawn away by the scoffer. And she's saying, listen to me. If you turn at my reproof, which is to say, when I correct you, if you turn away from what you're going after, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So if you turn when you're reproved, you will gain wisdom. 24, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you will call upon me, but I will not answer. You will seek me diligently, but you will not find me. 28, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. And I would suggest that refers to all three. One of the things that I find fascinating, and I thought about this for a long time, and I don't know what to do with it. When God finally steps in and corrects something, the correction is very harsh. So when God finally steps in with Israel, you have the Assyrian or the Babylonian invasion and literally pregnant women are ripped open. I mean, it's just horrible. And what wisdom is saying here is when it hits that stage, you're going to turn and cry out to me, and I'm going to laugh at you. And the thing that I don't know is as you're dealing with people and you see somebody going astray, it's sort of a question of how long do you keep trying to get the attention of someone who doesn't want his attention gotten. And when the fruits of his folly finally catch up with him, what is the godly response and what is the godly thing that you should do under those circumstances when he finally does, as here, cry out? On the other hand, you have human compassion on someone who's suffering. Let me give you an example. The nation of Haiti. The nation of Haiti has made a choice, not individual Haitians, the nation. And they are anti-God. Haiti, the other half of Hispaniola. You know, they're on the same island. And half of the island has gone over to voodoo and all that kind of stuff. And that society is just awful. People keep pouring money into them, trying to do relief and all that kind of stuff, and it just disappears. It doesn't make a difference. So the question is, do we have any obligation for people who have chosen the way of folly when their folly finally catches up with them? And I don't have an answer to this. I'm not here preaching. I'm asking the question. Because as I read in Scripture, when they finally hit that point, God just looks at them and, sorry about that, and laughs at them and mocks. Yet we as humans mount tremendous leap operations every time 
yet another disaster strikes that island. And I firmly believe that's a function of the path that they have chosen. Satan is a lousy God. As I read these passages of Scripture, this is a question that I have struggled with for years because I don't know the answer to it. Right, let's pick it up at 28, which is a sentence. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. So when you get to the point where you're getting the fill of your own devices, it is not a pleasant thing. And at that point, it's sort of like a guy mugging somebody and kills him, and they say, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Well, it's done. And the consequences of what you have done are going to follow no matter how you feel about it. So somebody once said, you're perfectly free to choose your actions in every circumstance. What you are not free to choose are the consequences of your actions. The consequences of your actions are out of your hands. And that's what this is saying. 32. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It's chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. All right, so we had the fear of the Lord is the beginning. And so now we're back here understanding the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning. And when you get through all of this, having listened all this time, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of the saints. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. Notice the shift there. So he shields the person who walks in integrity, but he guards the paths of justice. In other words, the paths of justice are not necessarily where you happen to be walking. They are simply the pathways of justice, and he guards those. Now, you want to be on the pathway of justice because that is a path that he is guarding and watching over the ways of his saints. So if you walk in wisdom and understanding, then he will walk with you, and he's guarding the path of justice regardless of whether you're on it or not. But being on it where he is guarding it is a good thing. Verse 9, Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Remember, we started off this business with warning about falling into people who would entice you to walk in a way of evil. And what it's saying here is 
if you walk in wisdom, you will come to understand it, and then discretion will watch over you. And again, this is discretion personified, if you will, and understanding will guard you. Coming back to verse 9, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. So righteousness, justice, and equity are all good paths, and righteousness, justice, and equity are three different things. The Bible doesn't use more words than it needs to. So if it's using three different words, there's three different concepts. Righteousness is how you behave. Justice is how you treat others in a legal sense, and then equity is how you treat them in a non-legal sense, if you will. There's a difference between legal and fair, and he's covering both of them, if you will. And he's saying, by the way, all of this will keep you from the paths of those who walk in darkness, who we talked about earlier, who wanted to combine everything into one pot, and we're going to go out and knock over a liquor store, and we're going to score some big bucks. This will keep you from that. So we're returning to that concept. Verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. Wisdom has been personified as feminine here. Now we're seeing the other side of the feminine. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. In the Hebrew there is a strange woman, as, as in not the one in your household, a stranger. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. This is obviously adultery. This is not two unmarried people fooling around behind the barn. This is someone who is wed to another and has forsaken her marriage vows. And what he's saying here and will say again later is if you get into that kind of a trap, you generally do not get out because if nothing else, the one who she has forsaken will come after you, and rightly so. Verse 20, so you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. And of course, that goes back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where you have... God promising that if you keep his word and keep his ways, you will live long in the land and will prosper. But if you don't, you will not. And I'm going to stop with two chapters. 